There is no question that in the past year, especially, there's been a growing urgency and perhaps realization that the world needs to step up its efforts in addressing climate change. The result is we've seen policymakers and businesses alike setting net zero targets, then trying to figure out how they will achieve them. Natural gas features prominently in these conversations with ardent supporters on one side and fierce critics on the other. In this edition of Spotlight, we talked to Andy Lubuchain, Senior Vice President Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners, an investment firm dedicated to helping the world transition to a low-carbon economy. I'm Kalaipi Gorntis with Infrastructure Investor. Natural gas is often viewed in black and white terms. EIP, however, takes a more nuanced view. The gas in the ground is there. It's possible to tap into at a really affordable cost in a lot of locations. And so the question is, can we use that resource in an increasingly clean manner? And I think our general view is that the answer is absolutely yes. We can get to, over you know, the next 20, 30 years, very close to the use of natural gas in a number of different end uses through the use of various forms of carbon capture and sequestration in a very close to net zero manner. But it's the methane emissions associated with natural gas that ruin, quote unquote, this resource's clean energy credentials. Uh, you know, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, natural gas, methane itself is a potent greenhouse gas, far more potent than carbon dioxide in terms of global warming potential, particularly in the first few decades that it's emitted and that differential wanes over time as methane is broken down in the atmosphere. So, you know, the best studies that we have show that in a North American context today, something like two and a half percent of natural gas is leaked, beginning all the way at the wellhead and going all the way down to the end user. According to these studies, roughly 75% of these leaks occur upstream, that is during production and gathering. If you dig a little deeper and you look at the data on individual producers, what you can see is they're actually a bunch of producers that have very, very low leak rates already. And then there's sort of a long tail of producers, what are generally you know, thought of as kind of the wildcatters, the smaller companies out there that are you know, moving fast and uh, trying to tap into new wells quickly, who are responsible for the large majority of fugitive upstream emissions. And that presents a challenge because you already have you know, international oil and gas majors who are being pretty darn careful and have already taken a lot of the steps, which are actually relatively low cost and oftentimes kind of pay for themselves over time to absolutely minimize their emissions. But unless we have a mechanism for either putting much more regulatory or policy pressure on all producers, or, and this is potentially an interim solution, you have large natural gas buyers who are willing to put pressure on their suppliers and essentially say we're only willing to procure gas from producers who, you know, are monitoring their systems and are guaranteed to have best in class emissions rates, then it's hard to see the smaller producers, you know, making a change in the near term. So I think basically we need to see a combination of buyer pressure and eventually pretty strong regulatory pressure to solve the problem. Speaking of monitoring, EIP has invested in a company called Project Canary, which provides a suite of tools for monitoring emissions at the wellhead in these gathering systems and potentially in compressor stations and other ancillary equipment for pipeline operators, Lubashane says. 
we really believe there's a role for that kind of monitoring equipment and you know scientifically valid calculations and software platform for giving the market confidence that producers and gas pipeline operators are really getting as close to zero as possible. So, you know, I think that's going to play a really important role. Let's say then that in an ideal world, all these factors, regulatory pressure, pressure from buyers, monitoring systems, and more affordable technology all come together to ensure that natural gas is produced and processed responsibly. Could it then be more than a bridge or transition fuel? Hypothetically, yes. I mean, I'd start by saying there's no way that natural gas is not going to be a bridge fuel. You know, I think anyone who believes we're going to phase out gas in the next 10 years is kidding themselves, frankly, in almost any energy system in the world. It's the fuel that is used in many of the most difficult to decarbonize and and use sectors and is uh, an incredibly critical energy resilience asset when it comes to building heat. And I think increasingly when it comes to distributed power generation, for example, we have an investment in a company called Enchanted Rock, which operates these incredibly low emissions, quiet, power dense, distributed natural gas gen sets, which, you know, frankly, throughout some of the big power outages we've seen, for example, in Texas in the last year, were the only things that we're keeping the lights on at key locations uh, for communities like grocery stores, for example. And, you know, that's because the natural gas infrastructure we have in the ground is much more resilient to storms than electric infrastructure. And I actually think there's an argument to be made that, you know, one of the best long term uses for natural gas is as a source of distributed resilience, both for heating and for the power system as a whole. And so we have to attack these upstream emissions whether you think natural gas has a 30-year future, a 50-year future, or a 100-year future, right? Because it's going to be around for somewhere between 20 and 30 years in almost any scenario I can imagine. And then I guess the, the, my, my other answer is yes, I, I think it's possible natural gas is more than a bridge fuel. I could see more than a 30-year future for natural gas if we really are able to get a handle um, and absolutely minimize upstream methane leaks, and then if we're able to deploy technology uh, for carbon capture and sequestration, whether pre or post-combustion at some larger kind of industrial scale end uses. And I hope to see that because I think it's a probably a really valuable kind of cost pressure valve or, you know, way of taking cost pressure out of the system, particularly in the next 30 years to be able to continue to rely on gas. From an infrastructure investor perspective, one can't help but wonder what a longer-term future for natural gas might mean in terms of stranded assets. Is it possible that those investing in natural gas infrastructure don't necessarily need to worry about future-proofing these assets? I wouldn't say you don't need to worry. (laughs) You know, the future is not set in stone. And there is no doubt in my mind that there's a risk to natural gas infrastructure assets today in pretty much all of their forms. And again, I think the biggest existential risk is that we don't end up getting a handle fast enough on methane emissions. And because of that, the industry as a whole starts to really lose its social license to operate public acceptance. And you see more and more states and countries that implement natural gas bans on, you know, new construction, new buildings, new facilities. And eventually you see, you know, much more aggressive pushes to electrify end uses or to decarbonize via other methods. And so, you know, there's a risk, I think, to investment in 
natural gas assets today. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But I believe, again, that the best outcome for society would be one in which we make the absolute most of the assets we already have in the ground, including all those pipeline assets, to transport probably a mix of different gaseous fuels. I think, you know, in some cases, natural gas itself, in some cases, modest, you know, small blends of hydrogen, in some areas, renewable natural gas. I think in some in some places, you might actually see a wholesale transition where, you know, as demand for natural gas declines, you could see pipelines that are retrofitted to be able to carry up to probably 100% hydrogen. If you look at maps of where there's a lot of natural gas production in the U.S. today and where the kind of best wind and solar resources are in the country today, uh, there's actually pretty high correlation. And so, you know, maybe maybe some of those pipelines carrying gas from West Texas end up carrying hydrogen from wind power 20, 30 years from now. I mean, I don't think that's going to solve the problem overall and, you know, salvage all of the value of those gas assets if we really do have a situation with real plummeting natural gas demand. But I think there are opportunities to make use of many of those assets in, in the long term. Thank you, Andy. And that's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or at PEI's various titles online. For Infrastructure Investor, I'm Calliope Gorntis. Thank you for listening.